you know, as Christians, we have to understand and, and be real with where we are. That's what we have to see first, individually. And what where our mindset is and what we desire. Airing the Addisons. I think what God is really calling us back to, it's those individual personal revivals in our own lives where we're like, oh Lord, what have we done? We have minimized you. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. As the church, man, we should be on the forefront yes. of making disciples, of indoctrination in godly things. If we don't train our kids, they will not be able to stand. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Well, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Matt Ayers, your guest host of Airing the Addisons this afternoon. I'm the president of Wesley Biblical Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, and uh, also professor, associate professor of Old Testament here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. And uh, we had a time, great time together yesterday, uh, talking about the book of Revelation. And we ended the show uh, with a phone call uh, from Stephen uh, from Texas. And um, I wanted to pick up where we left off last week and just clarify a couple things, extend the conversation a little bit further. Stephen had asked about uh, the doctrine or the teaching of the notion of the rapture, um, an eschatology question, um, along with a couple other questions thrown in there. And uh, so I wanted to just uh, follow back back up, you know, around on those items before going further in the book of Revelation. Um, the first thing that I wanted to point out in picking up uh, from where we left off yesterday is that what we're doing here, at least what I'm doing here, is exegesis, right? We're doing an expository comment on the text of Scripture itself, and, and uh, that's to be distinct, or at least set apart from, doing what's called systematic theology, right? And so when we study a book of Scripture, we're going through line by line, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, even word by word, phrase by phrase, to try to understand the meaning of the text itself. This is the concept of hermeneutics, or biblical interpretation. And that is a first step that leads us, of course, to uh, what's called systematic theology, or even dogmatic theology, historical theology, practical theology, political theology. And, and what, what I am not doing, I just want to clarify in terms of methodology, in terms of goal and aims in the show with you, is that this is not uh, a segment on systematic theology, namely eschatology. Yes, we're looking at the book of Revelation, but this is not a eschatological lesson or a lesson on the study of end things according to Christian teaching, right? And that's what the word eschatology means. It comes from a Greek word, eschatos, and ology, discussion of, study of, study of end things. And there, there's room for that. And in fact, it's very essential and important that we do systematic theology, uh, and that we study what the Bible says about the end. But what we're doing here is exegesis, right? We're doing an expository evaluation, an exegetical evaluation of the biblical text itself. The, the intent here is not to take that additional step to do systematic theology. Now, there's, a, again, a place for that. Uh, look at wbs.edu, Wesley Biblical Seminary, our website. We have courses that you can sign up for and audit that are systematic theology courses on things like eschatology, the study of 
of the end, or teaching of the end times, or soteriology, the study of salvation, various theories of atonement, you know, the Christus Victor theory, penal substitution theory, satisfaction theory, ransom theory, governance theory. There's all these different theories, uh, I say theory, notions, ways of understanding Jesus' salvific or saving work on the cross. You want to take a class on Christology, the understanding of Christ and who he is, fully God, fully man, uh, one person, you know, etc. So those would be systematic theology courses. Um, and you can do those things here with us. You can embark on those sorts of studies on your own, purchasing books on systematic theology. But that, uh, I want to be clear, that's not what I am doing here. This is not a segment on eschatology or systematic theology as we study the book of Revelation together. This is just simply biblical exegesis. It is. Uh, it goes before doing systematic theology. Now, granted, that, that, that being said, we can certainly springboard off of things that we read in the text and discovering what the meaning of the text is and make suggestions about what this can mean for us with regard to systematic theology, but that's not exactly what we're doing. So I just wanted to point that out first. <laughs> and I knew, by the way, coming in, uh, if I decided to talk about the book of Revelation, that I would almost definitely get questions or phone calls about the second coming and the rapture, um, and that technically is a systematic theology question and it is not purely a exegetical question. Exegesis relates to it. But nonetheless, the question comes, and I'll do my best to answer the question and speak to the question yet even further. Um, Before even talking about the rapture, however, which I'm not going to talk about uh, for a long period of time because that's not what this is about, and there are loads of other resources out there, uh, I'll come back to that point. But I I made a comment yesterday about uh, the difference between essentials and non-essentials. There was a question, Stephen's question uh, was partly related to the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. And we said yesterday that the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture says that the message of the biblical text is clear for those who read it seeking to love and obey God with the help of the Holy Spirit. And his question was, well, if that is true, why do Christians disagree about so many things that the Bible says? Infant baptism, believer baptism, rapture, end times theology etc. And uh, I pointed out that um, we do have to be more nuanced with regard to the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture in saying that we agree universally on all things essential, but on the non-essentials, there is freedom. And I, I used three terms here. I said there's a difference between dogma, doctrine, and belief. And the way that I'm defining those terms may be different than the way that others define those terms. Um, certainly, all when I say dogma, I mean the essentials. The word dogma just means opinion from Greek. Uh, but in fact, what's interesting about that is that these are things that the Church agrees aren't merely opinion, but in fact essential for salvation. I'm talking Apostles' Creed stuff. Virgin birth, Trinity, divine personhood of the Holy Spirit, the divinity of Christ, etc. Those are the essentials for salvation. Now, even though they are the essentials, they certainly fall into the broader category of doctrine, because doctrine just simply means teaching. That's all doctrine means in its most generic sense is teaching. But when I refer to dogma as being distinct from doctrine, within my context of seminaries, theological education, training pastors, and other clergy called into ministry, we mean something more specific when we say doctrine than simply generic teaching, because dogma is doctrine. Belief is doctrine, for for that matter. But when I say there's a difference between dogma, doctrine, and belief, I'm talking about the essentials versus the non-essentials for our salvation. 
Dogma is the essentials, are the essentials. Doctrine and belief are everything else. And those are categories of, of, of levels of, I don't know if you could say seriousness or weightiness. So dogma, the essentials, like I said, Apostles' Creed stuff, Nicene Creed stuff, Constantinopolitan Creed stuff, which deals with the divinity of the Holy Spirit, among other things, the personhood of Christ. Doctrine, or, 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 how I'm defining the word doctrine here, are things that aren't essential, but yet still important. All of these are important, but not essential for salvation. So doctrine would include things like infant baptism versus believer's baptism. It would include things like women in ministry, can a woman be a pastor or preach from the pulpit or not? Uh, that would Those would be examples of things that fall in the category of doctrine. And there's a long list of things. And then belief is even a lower category still. Things like... Um, what color should the carpet be, and how should our theology inform the choices that we make with regard to or, or our worship service and the order of worship? Belief would include things like, should we sing um, older hymns or should we use contemporary music? Those, that would, those things would fall into the category of belief, so non-essential. So when I say doc, doc, dogma, doctrine, and belief, I'm using that within a very technical frame. Um, so uh, I would say, generally speaking, we have to differentiate between between essential and non-essential. Now, what does that have to do with the book of Revelation and specifically the rapture? The rapture, um, historic, I was going to say in my view, but it's not just my view. In the history of the church, as it's existed from uh, the beginning, and we could, there are various points we can we can, we can identify as the beginning of the church, right? A lot of people talk about Pentecost as the start of the church. We can go back much further than that. But nonetheless, the rapture, through the centuries and even millennia in which the church has existed, no matter where you identify the starting point, has been not essential, but rather doctrine, not dogma, but doctrine. Whether you believe in a rapture or not doesn't determine your salvation. Now, don't conflate what I'm saying here. Don't conflate rapture with second coming, right? The second coming, the return of Christ, the bodily return—the first coming was Christmas, right? Jesus comes in flesh, God comes to us, the sending of God, the Missio Dei, that's the first coming of Christ, and there will be a second coming. And this is not a symbolic second coming, it is a literal return of Christ in bodily form in which all will see him, he will come on the clouds, right? That is essential. That is what this church has always believed, that Christ will return. But that is not to be conflated or made synonymous with the rapture. The rapture is a doctrinal or one particular teaching as with, with regard to how or the means by which Christ will return. So rapture is not an essential. The return of Christ is an essential. And rapture is just one view with regard to the means or the when, the how, as to how that will happen. So let me give you another example related to the end of all things, right? Eschatology it would be um, some uh, another example in terms of doctrine or a non-essential. We all agree that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, right? That is Apostles' Creed essential stuff. It's an essential. But as to how that new heavens and new new heavens and new earth will come about is debated. Right? So we all agree there will be a new heavens, new earth, everything will be perfect, purified of sin, all corruption and decay, dealt with, gone, everything is redeemed, etc. But will the new heavens and new earth be a renewal of the existing, or will the existing be burned up, destroyed, done away with, and entirely replaced, right? And th that question is debated, 
and there is proof in Scripture for both of those views. Now, I will say, even though this particular session is not specifically on this issue, I will say that we look to the resurrected, glorified body of Jesus as the firstborn of the new creation. The Colossians tells us he's the firstborn of the new creation. Revelation tells us he's the firstborn of the new creation. And if the the recreated, glorified, let's say the glorified body, resurrected body of Christ is any indication as to what the new heavens and new earth are to look like, then it is not a complete destruction of the old, but rather a renewed version of the old, or regenerated or redeemed version of the old. However, it's possible that we can have the view that God will destroy the existing material of earth and materiality of the cosmos and the heavens and replace it with it, but that's not essential. What's essential is there will be a new heaven and the earth. How that happens, right? So rapture is in a similar category, non-essential. We believe Christ will return, that's essential, but how it happens can be debated. You're not counted out as a Christian, refused communion, refused place in worship among the saints because you don't believe in the rapture, right? That's It's a non-essential. So now, why am I belaboring this issue? I'm belaboring this issue out of an attempt to be obedient to one of the commands of Scripture that we find in 2 Timothy 2.23. This is a Pauline epistle, The Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says this, "...have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels." Now, why do I point that out? Because in my experience as a teacher of Scripture and of theology, this question about the rapture has bred more quarrels among Christians and controversies among Christians than probably any other teaching that I've dealt with. And I will fight tooth and nail to not be included in the category of those who disobey this command, that rather than having nothing to do with, with foolish, ignorant controversies that, that lead to quarrels or that breed quarrels, I want to keep this issue in its place as a non-essential, not give it more time and attention than the Scriptures give it. I will say I very much believe in a real, literal devil, Satan, and that he loves when we fight over non-essentials because we're wasting time. I'm not saying that the non-essentials aren't important, but they have the way that we deal with them has to be scaled to the level in which the text deals with them. And if the Bible itself isn't explicitly clear about whether or not Christ's return will be a, uh, a pre-millennial, post-millennial, amillennial rapture, how the rapture will work, then we have to be careful about trying to get the text to force it, to say something it's not. And we should focus on the things that the scriptures focus on. Now, we're going to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to weigh in on the rapture. And then we're going to get back into the book of Revelation. So... Um, So when we come back, we'll talk about the rapture, whether or not I think Scripture supports it. Um, I've already made it clear that I don't believe it's an essential teaching for salvation, Um, but we'll clarify that point when we return. Once that point is clear, then we'll move forward in our exegesis, right, our biblical study of the book of Revelation. Hang in there. We'll see you in a moment. He does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. He does whatever he pleases. 
Dr. Matt Ayers with Wesley Biblical Seminary, guest hosting, airing the Addisons this afternoon. Picking up where we left off, um, I said I was going to talk more about, just a bit more, not a ton more, about the rapture. So the rapture is highly controversial, um, and I point you to loads and loads of uh, wonderful resources out there on the internet. There's specifically the one I want to recommend to you on this issue is uh, a, a, a professor at Southern Seminary. His name is Dr. Thomas Schreiner, and he has about, a, I think it's about a 20-minute video, maybe even longer than that, explaining the various what we call millennial views. And the rapture is, a, is couched within one of those millennial views. And interestingly enough, those millennial views themselves are only capt- are couched in one particular particular interpretive frame for the book of Revelation itself, and that's called futurism, right? And so it's a quite a narrow, um, or let's say quite a small branch on which the rapture, the teaching of the rapture sits, and it's a relatively new branch within the broader teaching of the Church and Christianity through the millennia. Now, so that's my first thing I want to say about the rapture, is that it's a relatively new teaching. You know, it only really came to be crystallized in the form in which it exists today in the past couple hundred years. And uh, with the Schofield Study Bible, with Darby, and uh, dispensationalism, and it was a phenomenon that came out of came out of England and a movement, an evangelical movement inside of England a couple hundred years ago. And so I will say that I'm always cautious of teachings uh, that are relatively new, because one of the things uh, that is a test of uh, biblical and and universal teaching for the church is antiquity, that it's been around for a long time. And this is also one of the reasons why I don't count the rapture as an essential, because uh, Christians 300 years ago didn't even know what this was in terms of the rapture. So um, so I will say, that's not to say, however, uh, that I think a lot of New Testament scholars, and I'm not a New Testament scholar, I'm an Old Testament scholar, but nonetheless, a lot of New Testament scholars pretty quickly write off the notion of the rapture because of its newness, and, um, and I do have some sympathy for some of the arguments that they make against uh, the notion of the rapture. However, I will say that I don't write it off quite as quickly, because I do believe that there is room in the biblical text for a view such as the rapture, whether or not um, you know, it was crystallized relatively recently or not doesn't necessarily mean that the Bible doesn't teach that view, or at least leave open the possibility, let's say, of that view. Now, we don't have time here and now to go through all the Scripture verses that leave open the possibility of rapture—let's call it rapture theology. It's not really theology, but let's just call it rapture theology. So I do believe that there's room in the New Testament for this teaching. I don't think it explicitly teaches that. What I very much am against is anyone who uses the rapture as a litmus test to test somebody's uh, faithfulness to the teaching of Scripture. Anyone that says, well, if you don't believe in the rapture, it means that you don't interpret the Bible literally. I, I, I don't believe in that sort of statement whatsoever because of the newness of the crystallization of the notion. But I do believe, I'll make it really clear, that there is room in Scripture for this view. And I think that should be obvious. The reason it's obvious is because so many people adhere to rapture theology. If the Bible, you know, fundamentally, you know, wrote off or, or, or contradicted this very idea, and that was clear to readers of Scripture, then we wouldn't even be talking about it now. So the fact that so many faithful Christians, I, I believe them to be faithful, are reading the text and don't think that the text counts out the rapture as a possibility, then I think that should be noted and paid attention to. Now, I myself, for one, 
don't adhere to a rapture theology, but I'm open on it, right? So I don't, I'm not against it. I'm not particularly for it. And the reason I'm not particularly for it is because I believe that there's biblical evidence for other views that's stronger and more comprehensive. Now, again, this is not a lesson in eschatology, which is what we're doing right now. We're not doing biblical studies as we're talking about rapture. We're doing eschatology. They're related, but they're different, right? And so uh, now is not the time for me to lay out all the views and go through the strengths or weaknesses of the various arguments and the biblical proof and evidence and walk through the historical frame and cultural you know, notions that feed into certain declarations in the New Testament that are in support of or against one view versus another. That is a different dialogue for a different day. So I think there's room for it in Scripture. I don't think Scripture counts it out. Um, I don't particularly adhere to it, but I don't have a problem with people who do adhere to it. The reason that I don't subscribe to rapture is not because I think it's evil or wrong or new, uh, but because I think that other views are, are more strongly supported in the text. So all that to say, I, I, I hope that begins to answer the question that came in from Steve. I wanted to be faithful and ho- uh, hold my word to starting today with dealing with that issue. So now, I'm going to move forward then from this point. There's loads of books and videos on YouTube that are greatly you know, produced by wonderful scholars that go into high level of technicality and detail on these issues. I direct you uh, there. So I do want to take calls today. We'll do it towards the end. Hopefully we'll get through more than just one caller. Um, And I'm happy, I guess I'm kind of happy, I should say, to receive calls about this, but I'd rather calls about things that the text is explicit about. That's the thing, is that we can neglect what the text is explicitly telling us and the things that we can be sure that it's saying by debating things that it may or may not be saying. And I think that there's a risk there of wasting time. So let's focus on what we know for sure the text is telling us and be listeners and do doers of that word, and not spend too much time on controversies that breed quarreling. Okay, I've said my piece. So, where we left off, Revelation chapter 1, we were in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, the things that must soon take place. And we said that that seems to be a little odd, because there's lots of things in this book that haven't taken place yet. Therefore, how can the Bible say they're going to happen soon? It's that word soon that's a problem. And uh, one of the most common answers uh, to that particular question, or what seems to be a dilemma, is that uh, God in eternity soon, 2,000 years, is soon for him, right? His timeline is different than a human timeline. Now, there's a little bit of a issue that one could take up with this, that this is written to a human audience, and so it's assuming a human frame of reference for time. And 2,000 years isn't soon, it may be soon for God, but it's not soon for me. That's a lot of lifetimes, right? And so we have to then uh, supplement that possible view with some other possible interpretations. And here's one. There are things in this book that took place soon. Not everything in the book took place soon, according to a human time frame frame of reference. But there are many, many things in this book that took place soon. There is an interpretive school to the book of Revelation called the Preterist View, uh, which believes that everything in this book took place within the first century. And if those who are preterists, and there are some good faithful Christians who are preterists, um, preterists, 
that believe that everything in this book has already taken place, um, for them, soon, that's not an issue, because it did take place soon. Now, there's an obvious weakness to the preterist view, and that is that there seems to be things in this book that obviously have not taken place yet, like the full redemption of the material world, right? Where's the new heavens and the new earth? And they would say, combining with what's called an idealist view, that the new heavens and the new earth exists in my heart, right? And so it's not a literal thing, it's kind of like a symbolic, metaphorical, spiritual reality. I don't think that's what's happening, uh, because I believe in the little return of Christ. So in any case, or second coming of Christ. Um, Another possibility for the interpretation of this word soon, not just God's timeline, but a lot of these events did soon take place, but also that there's always a sense of urgency in prophetic literature. Now, when we get down to verse 3 in the book of Revelation, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So this book is prophetic, and in the good, faithful, prophetic spirit, even though things may be far away, we have to adjust our living accordingly now, right? So there is a sense of urgency, and this soon thing gives us that sense of urgency. But soon doesn't just inspire uh, a sense of urgency, it also inspires hope, in the sense that this is written to a first-century church who is suffering persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire, as well as some of the local Jewish movements—not movements, but Jewish, um, you know, synagogues, uh, customs, communities, that's the word, some of the Jewish communities around them. We're going to read later about the synagogue of Satan in the book of Revelation. We know that the Jews persecuted uh, Christians. In any case, for them— what good is it? What inspiration is it to know that my relief from this persecution is a long ways out, right? And so this is saying uh, some of the things we're going to read about are going to soon take place. Therefore, take heart. Your persecution is limited. The end is near. So there's, there's a few different options there in terms of how we can best categorize this word soon. All right, so let's keep going. It says, he made it known. Now, he is Jesus. So here we have a pronoun that refers back to what we call an antecedent, a noun. It's standing in the place of the noun. Um, so he is not referring to God the Father, but to Jesus. So Jesus made it known. And what is the it? It is also a pronoun. It is referring to the revelation. So Jesus made the revelation known to John by sending his angel to his servant John. Okay. Here we have our first mention of an angel in the book of Revelation, and this is worth under or highlighting or talking about, at least momentarily, because we don't see angels super often in Scripture. We certainly see them from time to time, but they're not main characters in the story. And the book of Revelation is one of these places in Scripture where we have more content or, or, or data that we can use to build what's called angelology, or thinking or talking about the role, identity of angels in the greater ecosystem of, of Christian belief. And so angels play an important role in the book of Revelation, and the question is, well, why is that? Why, is, why are angels like peripheral characters so often in Scripture, but then we get to Revelation, and they're all over the place? Well, there's an easy answer to this. The easy answer to this is because this revelation is an unveiling. That's what we said the word apocalypse means, is an uncovering. And one of the things that it uncovers is the hidden realm, or the unseen realm. Remember, this first century audience is suffering persecution of a seen material realm, the governments of humans at the, uh, at the behest of the great red dragon and the beasts. Well, the beasts are the governments and the symbolism later on. But nonetheless, God is reminding his followers who are suffering, that there is a reality that they can't see. And a part of that reality is the angelic 
host. That eternal reality, there's something going on. So part of the unveiling is unveiling the unseen. And the unseen is that which will last forever. That which doesn't last forever, your persecution, suffering, and the power of your enemies, right? That will end. But that which lasts forever is the unseen realm. Paul even says, there are things which are seen, and things or things which are visible, things which are unvis- invisible, and the invisible is eternal and will last forever. So as a source of encouragement and reminder that God is fully in control, we're going to get a view of his throne room. Fear not your current circumstances, because there are realities that you can't see, and angels are a part of that unseen reality. Now, so beyond why angels become more central in the narrative here in the book of Revelation compared to other parts of the scriptures, is because angels, their most common function is to be messengers. They have various functions. Uh, we see in the book of Daniel, as well as in the book of Revelation, that angels are also, uh, they, they're, they're warriors. Uh, Jesus talks about little ones having guardian angels, so they protect. Um, they also instruct. But most of the time, nine times out of ten, when an angel appears in Scripture, it is a courier, someone who's carrying a message. And this is exactly the role of this angel here. So Jesus makes the revelation known to his servant John through an angel. Now we're going to see that um, later on in the letters to the seven churches, the angels are also essential in carrying letters to those churches from John. So angels are messengers, and here in this uh, occurrence, it is a messenger as well. So, so he made it known to, by sending his angel to his servant John. Notice that John is called his servant. This is interesting uh, because the kingdom in which we live, the Christian kingdom in which Christ is king, is an upside-down kingdom. It's not the royalty who have all the status and power and all the honor and respect and love, but rather servants, those who yield, those who submit. Think Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. So normally we say, okay, Jesus made this known to his slave. It's like, oh, that's... that's uh, Are you sure you want to do it that way? Well, slaves, those who are last in this world will be first in the kingdom. Moses is famously known as the servant of God. Um, So this obviously relates to the first verse that talks about um, the servants of Christ and how that is a good thing. And we talked about theologically how we become servants of Christ. We're bought with a price or ransomed and all those sorts of things. So um, his servant, John. Now, notice, this is interesting. John is referred to in the third person here, right? So uh, unless John is writing, and it could be that John is writing about himself in the third person, but John also takes the first person perspective later on. So if we drop down to verse 9, it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation. So what scholars have suggested here <clears throat> is that this prologue was prob- could have been, I won't say probably, but could have been written later as an introduction to John's revelation. Um, so, but th- th- thus the third person reference. It doesn't say, he made it known to me by sending me his angels. It says he made it known by sending his angels to his servant, John. So third person reference could mean that there is another hand at work in writing this introduction. Uh, uh, but that doesn't compromise the integrity of the text at all. So let's keep going further. Now we're in verse 2. We've already talked about John and who that probably is, John the Apostle. Verse 2, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now, <clears throat> what's not clear is who this who is. Who bore witness? Is John the who, or is the angel the who? And it's most likely that it's uh, 
John, who is the who, because we don't hear about the angel again here. The, the, as, as the text moves on, John becomes more of a central character. So it's probably John who bore witness to the Word of God. Now, this is interesting. Bearing witness. Being a witness, which we've already talked about even yesterday, has an essential role in the book of Revelation. A faithful witness, that word witness is martyr, someone who attests to a truth or reality that is contested. And John is faithful in his witness, which is why he's been exiled to the land, the island of Patmos, outside of Greece. And so John himself, like Christ, is a faithful witness. But he's not just a generic witness, he's a witness to the Word of God. Now, uh, there's different ways that we can interpret word here, but this is very Old Testament prophecy-like. Prophets will say, I saw the word of the Lord, rather than hear the word of the Lord. And we'll talk about, when we come back, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, we'll talk about the just, you know, auditory revelation and a visual revelation. And when we come back, we'll take phone calls too. I'll send the number out to you here after the break, and uh, we'll talk some more. I want to hear from you. We'll see you in a moment. Seminary, wbs.edu, talking about the book of Revelation. Not systematic theology and eschatology, but the text of the book of Revelation. Um, if you like the sort of study, an in-depth study on the, the text, the biblical text of Scripture, um, please check us out at wbs.edu. I'm also doing a multi-episode multi series on the book of Revelation. The name of my podcast is Seminary Unboxed. At Wesley Biblical Seminary, we train trusted leaders for faithful churches. So uh, please feel free to call in with your questions as we're talking about the book of Revelation. The number is 888-589-8840. 888-589-8840. Okay, so who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ? In the prophetic literature of the Old Testament, the prophets would also often say, I saw the Word of the Lord. And this is interesting because words are auditory revelation, but seeing is visual revelation. Uh, so um, how we bring those two things together, prophets are people who are seers. That's what the word prophet originally meant in the Old Testament, is one who sees, that God gives a special perspective or view on a certain circumstance or situation. And this is certainly the case of John. So when he, when this text says that he bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, it is putting him in the category of the Old Testament prophets. In other words, authoritative. He's using a formula that is a badge of authority to be able to speak on behalf of God. So that's what we have going on here, the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is interesting as well. Every word of Scripture is interesting, right? So here we have um, the revelation of Jesus Christ that is the testimony of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is central in this. this. Jesus is the originator. He is the author of the content of this book. He's the one who reveals, and he is the perfecter of the faith. And we will find as you read on in the book that Jesus is the central character, and that when the book comes to a pivot, 
there's a crying out in heaven. John has his wonderful um, heavenly throne room vision, and then there's a crying out, who has the authority to open the scroll that's sealed with seven seals? And of course, it is the one who is the lamb who appears as if he has been slain. Uh, what is the meaning of this? Well, there's lots of different things that we can say about this, but Jesus, as the central character, is that the seal represents this book of Revelation that is the fullness of God's plan for redeeming all the creation, and only Jesus can open it. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan uh, in uh, the creation and in the world. And so Jesus is the central character from the get-go, from beginning to end. And of course, this makes sense as we have what we call a Christocentric reading of Scripture. It is all about Jesus, and that's certainly true in terms of the end times. If it weren't for Jesus, we couldn't arrive at God's plan. God's plan for us couldn't be fully actualized and realized. Uh, Penny from Florida. Uh, How you doing, Penny? Um, it's Tammy, and I just had a quick question. Is the mark of the beast going to last more than the seven years? Is it going to go into the 1,000 years, or do you think it'll just be for the seven years? Yeah, sorry about that, Tammy. Yeah, the mark of the beast. Interestingly enough, just for listeners who may not be familiar, the book of Revelation talks about the mark of the beast, and, and the beast will put his mark on his followers. So um, uh, let me let me try to give you a bottom line up front answer to that question, then I'm going to talk more generally about the mark of the beast. So um, essentially, the short answer is we don't know, because um, the Bible doesn't say explicitly how long the mark of the beast will last. Um, so while we don't know how long the mark of the beast will last, there are things about the mark of the beast that we do know. So let's let's kind of check off some of these things that are clear about the mark of the beast. First is that everything the powers of darkness do, as recorded in the book of Revelation, or predicted to do uh, in the book of Revelation, is a parody of what Jesus does. There's the Holy Trinity in the book of Revelation, where you have the Lamb who was slain, the Son, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have God the Father. Likewise, the parody from the powers of darkness are the red dragon, the beast of the land, and the beast of the sea. And then uh, the beast of the land is also known as the false prophet. Likewise, in the book of Revelation, Jesus, or God together, God the Father and Jesus Christ, and we can throw the Holy Spirit in there, mark off his people. They are sealed, is the language, the sealing of the 144,000. And as a parody of that, the beast seals his own people, those who are faithful to him. And it is a mark that is visible. You know, it talks about it being a mark on their foreheads. And what is the mark of the beast? Well, according to Revelation, it's the number 666. And we can talk about what that could mean or what it doesn't mean, and there's lots of debate among scholars, but the the general consensus is that 666 is the numeric value of the name uh, Nero, who was a Roman emperor who was the first to really turn up heat in the persecution of Christians. Um, So every letter in the Hebrew alphabet has a numeric value, and if you add up the numeric value of the name, uh, the Caesar Nero, it equals 666. There are other calculations that will lead to 616 as well, which is a number that appears in some of the other uh, Revelation manuscripts of the the ancient world. 
But it's important not just that it points to this human figure, Nero, because it does say in the text of Revelation that it is the number of a man. With he who has ears to hear, ears to hear, listen, right? So um, it does point to a number of a man, Nero, but beyond that, the number six is important because numbers are really important in the book of Revelation in that they're symbolic. We see the 144,000, we see the number three and a half, we see the number seven, uh, and uh, seven is the number of completion, eight is the number of like divinity beyond completion, and six is short of that. It's a human number. It's the maxing out of human capacity. And so there's symbolism there as well in in what that refers to. So the short answer is we're not sure exactly how long that will last, uh, but there are things that we can be sure about. And the main thing that we can be sure about is that the devil will always parody or counterfeit what God does, and the Scripture affirms this in other places as well, and that there will be a distinct distinguishing mark between those who belong to God and those who belong to Satan and his powers in the world. And that mark will be visible for people to see, whether it's on foreheads or hands, or maybe it's visible in other forms, but it's going to be a way of distinguishing God's people from other people. And this is where I usually launch off into talking about the importance of holiness, right, and the life of the church. There's also uh, something else that will distinguish God's people is that in their faithfulness to Christ, they will be refused to buy and sell in the marketplace. Um, And so there are different theories around what that means, you know, whether or not Christians were refusing to use Roman currency, because on those coins, it would have said that Caesar was God, and they refused to affirm that reality by employing or putting to use that currency, um, which is an interesting concept and probably historically uh, pretty accurate. So sorry I can't give you a specific answer. We just don't know. We're not sure. There's a lot more to be said about the mark of the beast, but as far as for now, that's what we'll say. Uh, Victoria from, Ar- I think, uh, yeah, Arkansas, um, Go ahead. Victoria, you still there? Uh, yes, I am. My question was, I've heard a lot of different things growing up uh, Christian and in the church about the 144,000 people, and I was just wondering if you could elaborate better on what that is. What are, what are those 144,000 people? Yeah, great question. Uh, 144,000. There are differing views um, universally, right? So the Jehovah's Witnesses have one interpretation, the 144,000. So I'm, I'm going to, when it comes to the differing views, I'm going to stick to the, the, the classical Christian views, right? I'm not going to talk about pseudo-Christian cults and what their views are. So with, in other words, I'm talking about doctrine, right? We all agree that the text says 144,000 and it marks off the number of God's people, but who is this group of people exactly and is it a literal number? So within classical Christianity, there are two primary views on the 144,000. Um, the first view is that the 144,000 are faithful Jewish believers, or what we call Messianic Jewish believers, ethnic, racial Jews who put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Uh, that's one view. And the reason for that view is because there are 12,000 for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I'm going to come back, and, and we have to be a little bit more nuanced even with that statement, because not all the 12 tribes are mentioned, and why 12,000 of the 12? We need to answer that. So that's one view, is that 12, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, these are racial, ethnic, Jewish believers, and faithful those who faithfully follow Christ. Um, that's one view. The other view is that the 144,000 are all believers, and that this is a symbolic number, uh, not just Jewish believers, but Jewish and Gentile believers together. Um, what's and, and there's evidence in the text that, let's say the text doesn't rule out exclusively one of those views. After studying this, I believe that there's more evidence for one view 
over the other view. And I opt for the latter view, not the former, meaning that I do not think that this is, you know, a specific number of racial ethnic Jews who follow Jesus. I think this is symbolic of all of God's people. Um, There's a couple reasons why I think this. Um, The first reason why I think that 144,000 refers to all of God's people is because it appears more than once in the book of Revelation. Um, And the first time it appears is uh, the basis on which people argue that it's strictly Jews, because then John hears the numbering of the 144,000, and then he turns to see a multitude of people from every tribe and nation. And some people interpret that to say that these are two separate groups, the 144,000 and then the multitude that are added to, which would be the Gentile believers, the 144,000. And um, that's not a ton of, linguistically, in terms of how the language the text moves forward, that's not a ton of evidence to support that claim. And then later in the book, when 144,000 is mentioned, there's not that sort of dynamic present. And so um, I don't think that the evidence that this is strictly a literal number for Jewish believers is strong enough, at least stronger than. The evidence is there, but it's not as strong as the other view of all of God's people. I believe that John hears the numbering of the 144,000 and turns to see much to his surprise that included in that 144,000 of the tribes of Israel are people from other nations. In other words, all are included in the counting of God's people, not just ethnic Jews, because of the the work of Jesus in re-inheriting the nations who have been disinherited uh, at Babylon. That's a whole other line of argumentation we can pursue. But the other reason why I think the 144,000 refers to all believers, not just ethnic Jews who were faithful to Jesus, is because of the number itself. So 144,000 is 12 times 12,000, and we know that uh, this number 12 is representative of all of God's people. Uh, because of, of course, the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's where this notion begins, is with the 12 tribes of Israel. The interesting thing is when we go to the list in Revelation of the 12 tribes of Israel, it's in chapter 7, by the way, we have a list of 12 tribes, but there are some tribes that are left out. It's not a complete list. And the question is, well, why is that? And we're not exactly sure why that is. Um, but nonetheless, 144,000, 12,000 times 12 is a complete number, not one to be added to or taken away from. And so that's why I believe the roundness of the number and the symbolism of the number seems to me to very much imply all believers, not just Jewish believers. Um, This is a complete number. And this is a way of saying that um, everyone who should be in heaven will be there, and no one who shouldn't be there won't be there. Uh, that all of God's people will be included. No one's going to be, no pun intended, left behind. So I know that's a complicated answer, but that's oftentimes how things work with these questions. There's not just a short straightaway. Oftentimes there is, but oftentimes there's not. So those are the two views. Um, I hope that was relatively clear um, for Victoria on the 144,000. Okay. So with those two complicated questions uh, out of the way, let's go back up to—when I say back up, it's because I'm working on my Bible software and scrolling up to the the text—to where we left off in uh, verse 2, Testimony of Jesus Christ. I want to come and finish this phrase. Um, It says, "...who bore witness to the Word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw." Now, this is interesting because technically we could put a period right there at the end of Jesus Christ, but there's an added phrase, even 
to all that he saw. And the question is, why is that there? Remember, there's nothing superfluous in Scripture. Every word, every syllable, every sentence, every paragraph has, every chapter, every book has a purpose and a role to play. So why is this added? And this assures us that there's not something left out. And that assurance prevents believers from coming up with mythologies or strange beliefs to try to fill in gaps. And this is in the same spirit of what I said earlier in the opening of the show about not spending too much time on rapture, because everything that we need to know is here. John didn't keep something back. John was faithful to give us everything that God told him to give us, and we need not supplement it. We need not add to it. And every time we do, we are in the realm of controversy. We are in the realm of creative exploration at best, holy imagination at best. So Everything we need to know about the end times is in this book. It doesn't need added to. And that's an important, uh, you know, this really when I'm talking about is the sufficiency of Scripture. So his witness is to all that he saw, not some of it, yet all of it. Okay, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Well, our time together is near, and it's been a delight to be with you. Um, and I will say that, uh, of course, it was important to read aloud this prophecy because not as many it wasn't it didn't have as high as literary rates as we do today, and so not everyone could read. And they were feasting on the word of God as it was proclaimed and read aloud. Um, but note that the blessing is not just for those who hear it, but also for those who read it aloud and those who keep what's written in it. So in other words, we cannot benefit from the context or from the content of this bread, this eternal bread manna that is the word of God, if we don't keep, that is obey, right? That's a substitute word for obey, what is written in it. And what is the great call of Revelation? Per- persevere. Don't give up. The end is near. Christ is coming back. Don't give in. Be strong. And I leave that with you, Christians. Be strong. He's coming back. Thank you. Views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. Faith, Family, Freedom. American Family Radio. Share truth, apply scripture. The story of Acts is a brilliant, glorious, you know, 